Harvest Bible Church, it's good to see you guys today. And I wish I could sit there and say that I, I wish we had an opportunity for them to be here in, uh, in person, for you to hear the stories just go on and on and on. We did get to sit with a bunch of the missionaries on Friday and hear those things on Zoom. And just to God be the glory, one illiterate farmer coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and being so gripped by it that they're willing to go and give the entirety of who they are by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then you're seeing churches multiply, people coming to faith left and right. And that has been the testimony that we've heard from so many of our missionaries, even during a time like COVID, that the mission continues to go on. And that's the beauty of this thing. Like it never, ever, ever stops. No matter how hard it's been, no matter the lockdowns or whatever's been taking place, like the mission continues to go on. And so we give God praise and glory for that. Um, as I've mentioned in the first service, I, I lament along with Brian and the rest of the church and, and staff that we didn't get to be here. This is one of the things that we circle back around on every single year. We do celebrate and honor our missionaries that have been sent out from this body. They're not just random missionaries we partner with. They've come up from our body. It's been sent out over the years, and we celebrate that, and we honor that because that is the commission that God has given to all of us is to go into all the world and to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father. Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching people to observe everything that God has commanded us to observe. And so we love to do that and celebrate that. Um, we do always say around here at this time that we have a vision and a desire to see an entire church that, is, that understands that we've been sent into the world in which we live. That it's not just about coming and gathering on a Sunday morning or what takes place inside of these walls, that God has given us the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what God has done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And there's opportunity and responsibility to go and to bring that into the world in which we live. And so I want to talk about that a little bit more today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17. If you have your Bibles and want to go ahead and turn there, um, the question that I want to talk about is really how do we engage an increasingly skeptical and cynical and largely disinterested world that we're living in today? And so this is the question that all the missionaries deal with whenever you go with wherever they are being sent to, is to be able to say, okay, what is the context in which we live, and where do I go from here to be able to bring the hope of the gospel into this particular situation? A few months back, I shared that um, in thinking about the mission of God, it reminds me a lot of the early car sales days. And so um, if you're newer around here, you haven't heard any of those things. Back in the, in the college, right when I was graduating college, I wanted to take a break before I went to seminary and get into church ministry and everything forever. So I, I did car sales for a couple of years. And it was an interesting experience. I, I loved a lot of it because what's interesting about that is like we're kind of on the lower end of the totem pole right there. Nobody, nobody trusts car salesmen. Right? Like, we don't, nobody likes you. They think the worst of you, um, much like ministry in some ways. And so you kind of, you're like, all right, this, like, no, you don't have credibility built in. And I, I mean, you, you know this, you've anybody done any car shopping before, you're like, you hate the experience, right? It's not a, it's not a fun experience. You don't go on the lot and just uh, typically love the salesman or anything like that. But that was the experience. And so I can't tell you how many times I went out there and, and, uh, and it was funny, like you, you would, you go out there and you try to interact with somebody. And I can't tell you how many times I got like the, the literal hand up and they're like, no, 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 no. You stop and stay right over there. I'm good. I can figure this out on my own. You stay there. I'll let you know if I need any help. Right? And like, that's how it went. Like all the time, no credibility. They didn't want you to be around and stuff. And so, but it's my responsibility. I sit over there on the lot and, and, and it's my responsibility to sit there and say, okay, where do I go from here? How do I engage with this person in such a way that reestablishes trust or credibility and helps them get the thing that deep down inside they're longing for anyway? 
And I think that is the opportunity that we have before us here in the church in this cultural moment that we find ourselves in today. I think many of us know that um, and many of us know the difficulty of, of, of uh, global evangelization, but not only that, evangelization here in Dallas, Texas, where we find ourselves today. We know that there is a decreasing gospel influence culturally, so to speak. And we read the articles. We have the conversations. We know the saturation that takes place. A little while ago, I was reading this article that was talking about the increasing secularization of our country and how the South is following the trends of the North, which is often follow the trends of Europe and an increasing secularization and moving away from, um, from cult, definitely cultural Christianity, but gospel saturation uh, in and of itself. And it was talking about all the trends, how uh, the, the fastest rising religious affiliation is the rise of the nuns. We talk about that a lot around here. It's this a designation that says, I have no religious affiliation. I have no religious designation. I don't want anything to do with God. That is the fastest growing religious affiliation in America today. And it was just talking about a lot, of the, a lot of the things that are associated with that. But one of the quotes that came from this article was, uh, was one that kind of really captured my attention, but it got a lot of play on, uh, uh, it got a lot of retweets and things of that nature. But it said, hey, Christians, we've seen and heard what you're selling, and we don't want any of it, so stop. And I remember reading that, just kind of going, that, that, that is an increasing perspective today. Where do you and I go from here? How do we engage the world in which we are living in today in such a way that reestablishes credibility and trust and leads to a receptivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, all for the praise and for the glory of his name? It's the moment that we find ourselves in today. And I think Acts is going to help us with this. Paul is going to pick, we're going to pick it up in Acts 17. I want to pick it up in 16 and go all the way to 34. But uh, Paul's going to show us a little bit about how to engage a hostile culture well or to disengage culture pretty well. If you're not familiar with the book of Acts, uh, it's one of my favorite books. I started preaching on it when it first began here about five years ago. And it is all about the acts of the Holy Spirit, essentially working through the acts of the early church and the acts of the, Holy Sp of the, uh, the early apostles and bringing the gospel uh, all around the world. And so that's where it is. It picks up just after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? There's, uh, there's his ascension into heaven. Uh, there's the coming of the Holy Spirit 10 days later. The Holy Spirit fills the church. And then from there on out, it tracks the history of the growth of the gospel, the establishment of the church, and really how we got to have the gospel and be able to even worship here in Dallas, Texas today. It all begins right back there. And Jesus gives this commission to his disciples. He says, I want you to go and be my witnesses everywhere you go, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the earth, all the way to Dallas, Texas today. And so in Acts chapter 17, it's about uh, 17 years actually after the resurrection, Paul, the apostle Paul, who was Saul, we read about his conversion earlier on, uh, the gospel is going out there, churches have been established, there's been a lot of professions of faith. He's actually on a second missionary journey at this point in time. He finds himself in Athens, Greece, and he's waiting on his boys to show up, Timothy and, and uh, I believe it's Silas at that point. Uh, and so they come and... Um, and they're waiting to get, come together. And Paul is sitting there in the middle of Athens. And it says this. It says in verse 16 that while Paul is waiting for them in Athens, it says that he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so here's the scene. Paul is waiting on his friends to join him. They're, they're already engaged in the mission of God. They know what they're doing. It is a missionary journey. And he finds himself in this city. And he's looking around and paying attention to what's going on. And it says that his soul is distressed by the idolatry of the world in which he's, which he's observing all around him. And that's what's taking place. If you know anything about Athens, um, Athens was said, uh, it was said of Athens that it's easier to find a God in Athens than it is to find a man. 
If you've ever visited Greece or Athens today, like you see a lot of the remnants of how idolatrous of a city it actually was. And so we're not talking about anything like Dallas or anything today. Like the entire city, you're looking at temples, you're looking at actual statue idols and stuff, and you're looking at it and observing it, and you're seeing these things all around. And even if you went there today, you can see a lot of those remnants. You can see the Areopagus on the Acropolis or the temples of the Apollyon or Zeus, and you can see these things still standing there today. And so Paul's there, and he's in the city, and he's looking around, and he's paying attention. And it says that his spirit is being provoked within him. And I just want to bring out a couple things on the forefront right here. Number one, it's important that we do engage our culture in a way where we are paying attention to the idols in the world in which we're living in today. It's important that we pay attention to these things, and that we know what they actually are, that we can articulate where are the idols that the world is actually paying attention to and serving and worshiping today. It's exactly what we see Paul doing here in this text. In fact, it's one of the first things that missionaries do when they are called to a place, they go to a place, and typically what happens if it's an international scene or something like that, they're going to go through language school, they're going to go through cultural training, and they're going to take the first year or two years or whatever it may be to understand the culture in which they're ministering. And they're going to be paying attention to all the different things that are triggering people and keeping people from understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. A little while ago, I was talking with a missionary who was... uh, um, He's been serving in a long-term Hindu culture, and he was talking about how at the very beginning of his days, back in the early time when he was there first, he says, uh, I was really disillusioned because I thought things were going really, really well. And so he goes, I, I went out there, I was on fire, I couldn't wait to tell everybody about Jesus, and he's like, I'm out there and I'm sharing the gospel left and right, and like, I was so excited because everybody loved Jesus. I'm in a Hindu culture that embraces thousands of different gods, and he's like, everybody was all on board with Jesus, but what I discovered later on was that all they were doing was continuing to add to the Parthenon of gods that they already worshipped. And he goes, it took me a really long time to be able to discern and understand what was really going on. There's a lot of affection for Jesus. He's great. He's loving. He's wonderful. He's all these different things. But all they were doing in their receptivity to him and their affection for him was adding him into this Parthenon of gods that they already worshipped. And so it goes, it took me a little while to discern what was taking place and the real gods that were actually being lifted up in that day. And he goes, what was even a little bit more ironic is that I came to discover later on that the gods that they were worshipping weren't exactly the gods that were named on those statues that they were bowing down to over and over and over again. The gods that they worshipped were the things like money and health and prosperity and comfort and self and all the different things that these various gods happen to represent. But his comment is, my entire ministry changed when I was able to discern the gods that were actually being worshipped in this day. I was able to go and speak directly to those things, and I was able to shed the light of Jesus Christ into these dark places, and the gospel was actually able to be embraced in those moments. And church, what I'm saying here is, this is the opportunity that is before us today. To be able to pay attention to the false little g gods that are being worshipped, that are being lifted up all around us every single day. And to be able to pay attention to those things. So don't miss that part, right? Paul is here and he's noticing the gods that are all around him today. On top of that, I'm going to also say that it's good to be provoked by those things, right? I think it's easy to be provoked by other people's idols, Right? But, but there is a sense in which Paul is looking around and there is a, there's an emotional discontent taking place inside of his soul because of the idolatry which he's witnessing. So it's, it's not only good to pay attention and to be able to articulate them, name them, see the different idols that are going on in the world around you, but it's good to be provoked by those things. 
And I want you to notice he's not coming in there, and it's not saying that he is seduced by the different things that these gods have to offer, hypothetically, right? He's not coming in being like, oh, I want that. He's not seeing the gods and like falling into it or anything like that. Um, he's not intimidated by these idols. He's not shrinking in fear, being like, oh my gosh, I'm in the minority here. I don't have a voice. I don't have anything I can do about this. He's not free. It just says that his spirit is being provoked within him. In other words, there is an emotional response taking place inside of his soul, which makes him want to engage. And so it's good to pay attention to the idolatry of the world. It's even better to be provoked by that idolatry as long as you are equally provoked by your own. And I think this is one of the unique things that we're going to see in Paul's ministry from beginning to end is that he's not just about the finger pointing on the other side. As I mentioned a little bit ago, it's easy to be provoked by other people's idolatry, is it not? This is what we do. You don't even need to be a Christian to do that, right? It's the left versus the right. The left is provoked by the idolatry of the right. The right is provoked by the idolatry of the left. Uh, the world is provoked by um, the idolatry that they discern within Christianity, and there's a divide that takes place. There's a, the Christians are easy to be provoked by the idolatry of the world. Like It is easy to point fingers and be provoked by the idolatry of the other, if you will. But we see Paul in the middle of the city, and what he does is he sees the idolatry, and I want you to notice what takes place in 17. It says, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews, as well as the God-fearing Gentiles, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. And so Paul's looking around and he's saying, hey, there's all these idols and there's all these, these false gods that are out there, but it compels him to go to his own. He goes to the synagogue, he goes to his own, the Jews. He goes to the God-fearing Gentiles, the religious. And he's saying, no, 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 okay, all this idolatry that's out there, there's roots of it in here and there's a responsibility in my own, with my own people, with my own perspective, with my own religious affiliation to be able to pay attention to the gods that are going on inside of here as well. And so we do not just point fingers and say, hey, the idolatry is out there. The idolatry is with those things taking place there and it's in that false god right there. There's a responsibility and an understanding to say, you know what, it's in here too. It's in here too. And I love this about Paul's ministry because this is, his, this is his flow. This is the way Paul rolls with this whole thing. He doesn't give us this platform to sit there and to point fingers only and to lob the stones and to throw the rocks or anything like that. He seems to understand the church, our credibility out there, it begins with having integrity in here. This is, this is the trajectory of his whole ministry. He understands if you want to have a credible witness out there or friends or skeptics, people that are antagonistic to the gospel, it begins by having integrity in here and understanding that idolatry is not just a thing for them. It's a thing that can slip into the side of my own soul too. And I have a way of suppressing the truth of God, about God, elevating the God of self, lifting up a thousand other false G gods as well. And that is equally problematic for me as well. It's what Paul rails against in all throughout Romans, right? And we've been, we, we jumped into the book of Romans in the fall, and we're going to get back to it beginning next week. But again, this is the tra trajectory of his entire message. Chapter one is a lot of they language. Remember this? He's identifying the problem of the world. And he says, hey, here's the problem with humanity. You want to know why it's so broken? Humanity by nature, we suppress the truth about God. We elevate ourselves and a thousand other little G gods, and we worship them instead. And as a result, it brings about a ton of brokenness. And the whole end of chapter one is they, 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 they. And it sounds great to some, defect, some effect, but he's like, they, meaning the world, they were filled with all manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. And it goes on and on and on, all about the problems of the world. 
And before Christians can jump on our high horse and, and, and God followers can jump on our high horse, he turns the page in chapter two and he's like, hey, you believers, like, why are you getting so cocky? Like, I know you love the end of this chapter. I know you love being like, yeah, they, 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 they're blowing it up. They're blowing it up. They're screwing it up over here. Why are you getting so cocky? And he goes like, you who judge the other, don't you have a problem doing the same thing too? And we know that's the case. He goes on in chapter 7. We know that this is the case. We find this thing taking place inside of us, even as believers, even as people who have the indwelling Holy Spirit, a renewed heart, the inspired word of God, a fellowship of believers pointing us to truth. We find this thing in ourselves that we hate. We don't do the things we want to do, and we do the things that we don't want to do. This is what Paul talks about as a mature believer, probably the most effective missionary person, evangelist in the entire world that we've ever known. And he's saying, hey, I can't always be consistent. I'm not, like, I find this thing in me that I hate, like that I won't be perfect and godlike until Christ returns and he makes us all brand new. In the meantime, there is this tension and there's this inconsistency that I deal with in the, uh, uh, in the life that we have right now. And so Right up front, I just simply want to say this. It is great to get provoked out there. But honesty and credibility of our witness demands that you be equally provoked when it's in here too. Otherwise, it's what Paul talks about in chapter 2 where he says, The name of God gets blasphemed among the nations because of you. In other words, it's not just because of the outside influences. It's not just because of the tension of what the enemy's doing out there. There's a responsibility in here, and you don't pay attention to what's taking place in here. The name of God gets blasphemed among the nations because of you, he says. And so Paul looks at that, and he goes there. And he's like, I'm not just dealing with the, 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 the idols in Athens. I'm not just going to those temples. I'm going to my place, too. And church, this is the thing. We have to go to our place too. He's going, I'm going to the Jews and I'm going to the God-fearing Gentiles so that we can have a credible witness, so that we can pay attention to these things too and so that God can be glorified in the end. And so he keeps going, and I love this. He says, he was in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. In other words, he loves the community. He cares about them and he's going to the place where they congregate and where they gather. He knows their culture. He knows their world. He knows, hey, everybody's hanging out there, and so I'm going to go to you. I'm not just waiting for you to come to me. I'm going to be intentional. I'm going to go be with you. I want to be with you. I care about where you live. I care about the things that you eat and what you do. And then it says he comes in and it says that uh, some of the Epicureans and some of the Stoic philosophers, they were conversing with them. These are, um, the Epicureans are more like the hedonistic pleasure seekers. Uh, the Stoics are kind of more the emotionless robots in a lot of ways where they're like, you know what, I don't pay attention to anything going on in here. You got two extremes that often represent a lot of the religious extremes that we see today um, and some of the things that we believe about God. But it says that he's conversing with them. Some of them were saying, what is this idle babbler saying? In other words, they're making fun of him. Others were saying, well, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, which is an open-air assembly for city leaders. And they said this. They said, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, and so we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. In other words, keep in mind like what it would be like if you didn't have the internet or you didn't have your phone or you didn't have social media to tell you what's going on in the world. All you had was word of mouth everybody's gossiping and kind of saying, hey, here's what's going on. And they're just wanting to know the questions of the day. And so here's what it says. It says, Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and he said this, 
Um, I, I, love how he, I love how he engages him when he's feeling provoked. He says, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For when I was passing through, I examined the objects of your worship, and I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. In other words, Paul's looking around there and he's seeing all these known gods, these gods that have names, they have forms, they have faces, they have things that you can look at and you can see. And then he sees this other idol over there and it's just simply called the unknown God. In other words, this is kind of their just in case God. In other words, we've got thousands of them all around us in case we miss the right one. <laughs> this is the God for this, this for that just in case we missed it kind of a God right there. Kind of like uh, the universalistic approaches that we have in here a lot of times today. Uh, you've got a God, you've got a God, you've got a God. They're all good. They're all good gods. You know, we don't, want to, we don't want to say anyone's right or anyone's wrong or anything like that. And so just in case we're wrong, they're all good kind of a thing. And so this is what they're doing. And Paul jumps in here and standing in the middle of the area of Pegasus, he's listening to all the things that people are saying about him. Like, hey, you're a heretic, you're an idle babbler and all these different things. While he's feeling provoked by the idolatry which he's watching, the first thing that he does is he finds common ground with these people. Isn't that fascinating? Has that ever been your natural inclination when you felt provoked by something that you've seen out there? You know what? I'm going to step in. I'm going to find common ground with these people. It's just not what you typically do, is it? I mean, you don't feel provoked and all the emotional stirrings and stuff and then sit there and be like, you know what? I'm going to find common ground with them. But this is exactly what he's doing right here. He's looking around and he's going, okay, um, one thing we do have in common here is we're, we're really, really religious, Right? I, I could see that. Hey, we, we don't have a whole lot. We may not have a whole lot to go, to, to go on right now, but he's going, hey, I can see that you're really, really religious. I happen to be really religious too. I, I can see that. Men of Athens, one thing I can tell we have in common is you're religious in all your respects. In fact, you're so religious, you've even got an altar to an unknown God. Just so happens, I know who that God may be, and I'd love to tell you about him. It's not a common response. And Paul explains it a little bit more in 1 Corinthians 13. He writes this to the church in Corinth later on. It's the famous love chapter, and he describes what's going on. But essentially what he says is, this is what love does. It goes the extra mile. And he says this. He says, love is patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. It's not un it doesn't act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. But then here's what he says. He says, love is not easily provoked. Love is not easily provoked. In other words, it may feel provoked inside. It may look at the idolatry around you and be rightly provoked by the evil or by whatever may be going on there. It may feel the provocation inside, but it doesn't act out of that provocation. It doesn't act because, of it's, because it's provoked. It remembers love in the middle of that place. It remembers the truth of the gospel that while I too was lost and dead in my sin, while I too was an idolater who suppressed the truth about God, elevated myself, God loved me, moved towards me, found common ground with me in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh and became human being with me in, his extent, in trying to find common ground with us. And he did so so that he could live the sinless life, go to the cross, suffer, bleed, and die as a substitute for me that I may have life with him now and for all of eternity. That's what love remembers. And so when it's feeling... When it's feeling provoked inside, it remembers love, it remembers the truth of the gospel, and it has a decision to make. It's the same decision that Paul has to make here. Do I simply want to win and crush and suppress, or do I want to see people won? It's the question that every single Christian who engages the mission of God has to ask 
and has to be able to answer clearly in their head. Do you want to win? Do you simply want to win? Or do you actually want to see people want? And how you choose to answer that question will determine the course of actions that you take in engaging a hostile, a skeptical, a cynical world in which you live. I had a uh, seminary professor who's a professor of evangelism uh, way back in the day, and uh, I love this guy, but he would always say this. He would say, students, remember this. You will never, ever, ever win a people you do not love. Like evangelism has nothing to do, not nothing to do, but it is not about the systems, the processes, finding the right track, saying it the perfect way. It has nothing to do with any of those moves. You want to be, you want to be an effective evangelist. You want to bring the gospel into the world. You better love the people that you're trying to woo. You better love the people that you're moving and engaging with every single day. You want to be an effective evangelist, you better spend time on your knees in prayer, loving them, listening to them, caring about their needs, caring about the things that get them uh, irate inside, that have hurt them inside. You better love those people really, really well. And then the second thing he'd always say is where there is love, there is always, always, always agreement to be found. You love the people that you're engaging you will go the extra step in finding agreement with them so that you do not just throw rocks and destroy and rip apart and divide so that you can find this common ground that the gospel can be understood and, under, and embraced really for the very first time. And so we had this great, um, he had this assignment that he would have us do in groups. And I think this is a fantastic opportunity for you and your small group, maybe a little bit later on, but he had us get in groups and he had us answer this question. He simply said, where can I find agreement with the, skeptics, with the skeptics and with the cynics who are in my life? And he goes, I want you to get in this group and I want you to actually brainstorm, write these things out and present in front of the class. And I want to know where can you find agreement with the skeptics, with the, cent- the, the cynics, the dissenters, the disinterested in your life? And he goes, I want you to think about who they are. Where are you engaging? What communities are you engaging? Maybe it's a family. Maybe it's an area of town. Like, and what, where can you find agreement? And so we had this awesome pro- process where really probably for the first time, we put intentionality of thought into, okay, how do I find common ground with this group that I'm engaging over here? And we made this long list and we started writing out a lot of things. Number one, like I can find agreement and I can gr- agree that there are really, really difficult questions in, of the Bible. I had some friends that were, had a lot of difficult questions about the Bible. They didn't know how to answer them, and it was frustrating. And so they were kind of saying, hey, you know what? There's too many unanswered questions. I want to run from the faith. And, and I can agree there are very, very difficult questions about the Bible. It's not a thing I'm going to get defensive about in the middle of my conversations with those friends. I'm sitting with other friends in different communities, and I can agree with the pain that they've experienced at the hands of other Christians in their past. It's not a thing to debate. It's not a thing to argue about. It's not a thing to try to reason away. But I can sit there in empathy and agree with the pain that they've experienced from people who happen to be in my camp, self-included sometimes. I can sit there and agree with the brokenness in the world, right? You don't have to be a believer to look around the world and to be able to recognize, hey, things aren't as they should be. Things are incredibly broken. I, I, I can agree that there's brokenness that even creeps into the church, again, into people in my camp and into me. Like, I can agree with that because the Bible tells me we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and, and I'm no exception to that rule. There's brokenness that comes out in me, plays out in the world, hurts people that are out there, and I can agree with those things. And what I'm saying here is that where there is love, there will be agreement to be found. And when there's agreement to be found, you can find that common ground, and there is greater opportunity for the gospel to then be received. I'll never forget moving in a number of years ago to the, um, 
right across the street, essentially, and getting to know our neighbors. And we had some neighbors that have become very good friends since then. And the first time they came and we had dinner together, um, this is always kind of my experience. When I tell people, hey, I'm a pastor, it's one of those defining moments that I'm like, I'm like, all right, what, what's going on in your face? Is this a good thing or is this a really bad thing? Kind of like the car sales thing. You're like, you hate me or not, right? Um, it's a lot of times a very divisive thing there. And you're like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pastor. And yeah, we want you to have, we want to have you over for dinner. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of, you know, there's a lot of skepticism and cynicism that comes with that. But we remember having them over in our, in our living room. And, uh, they, you know, it was tense. It was a little tense. They didn't know. They're like, okay, what kind of, what kind of Christian are you? What kind of pastor are you? Are you the ones that we ran from and the past or not? And we had the conversation. We started talking and hearing their story. And finally, they felt the freedom to come and to share about their own pain at the expense of the church and what they had experienced. And the horrible, we'll, we'll just leave the details out, but the ways that there was hypocritical faith played out there. And the damage that it did to them and how it made them want to re- run and rebel and reject the truth and everything like that. And then came the moment of how's that going to be responded to when we were able to come in and just simply agree with someone's pain and be able to agree with the brokenness in which they've walked in and the things that they've seen and not make excuses, but to simply say, this is the narrative of scripture. This is the narrative of scripture. It's why we need a savior. This is exactly why Christ has come to come into the brokenness, to bring healing, forgiveness, grace, mercy, redemption, the entire thing. This is why we have a savior. And to be able to find that common ground so that friendship can be formed and so that there's greater opportunity for the gospel to be received in the end. One of my friends came in and he said, you know what, I've got a brother who's a Muslim and I'm a Christian. That happens to be, you know, we're not exactly on the same page on a whole lot of things, right? My brother's a Muslim, I'm a Christian, like, but here's the common ground. We both want to know God. Do we not? We both love God. We both love to pray. We love uh, we, we take our faith very, very seriously. And so he's making this list and he's saying, there's a lot of things we find agreement about. And he goes from that place, he's able to establish that relationship there and have that mutual respect in such a way that allowed them to go in to deal with their differences about the, about the gospel, who Jesus actually is in a constructive way. And so he goes from that place of mutual respect, they're able to deal with the facts of the resurrection. Muslims believe that Jesus is a great prophet. They have affection for him. They like him as well. Christians believe he's the actually son of the God. He's the son of God. He's the second member of the Trinity, right? This is who God is. And so he's sitting there and he's looking at the evidence of the gospel, the facts of the resurrection, and they're talking about that in such a way that has piqued curiosity because commonality and agreement has been found there at the very beginning. Church, there's always, always, always agreement to be found. I was talking with a friend this past week, his member, a longtime member here at the church, and I think his, his incredible gift is that he's able to love people better than I've ever known of anybody. Um, there's a friend of mine named Cole, and I always say he's kind of like Cole. They're kind of like hyper puppies, I think, in a lot of ways where they just love people better than anybody I've ever known. But he goes, this is my ministry. He goes, I like meeting with everybody uh, around. It doesn't matter if we're on the same page or not, buying them lunch, listening to their story. And this is what he does. He will sit there and he will take the people that are on the complete opposite end of the spectrum of life from him, politically, religiously, whatever views they may have, lifestyle choices, and he will buy them lunch and sit there and say, I want to know your story. Just tell me. And he's got a fascination with them and a genuine love and interest in them in a way that builds relationship and allows for a greater possibility of receptivity to the gospel in the end. But beyond that, there's a friendship that's being formed right there. And he goes, this is the opportunity, Aaron. Everyone has this in common. Everyone wants to be loved. Everyone wants to be seen. Everyone wants to be valued. Church, there's always, always, always 
agreement to be found. And Paul remembers that at the very beginning, in the middle of Athens, blatant idolatry around you. He's sitting there going, you know what? God loved me in the middle of that place. He found common ground with me. Hey, we may disagree about a lot, but guess what we can agree about? We're both really religious. We're, we're religious. You want to know God? I want to know God too. And I think it matters with this crowd. And it matters in this cultural moment we find ourselves in today, that we come when we meet people where they are. We care about their story. We find the common ground. And he does go on. He doesn't just leave it just with agreement. Like Paul comes and he does get confrontational right here. Because there is agreement and there's also disagreement, right? He comes in and I love what he says in verse 24. He says, the God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And just quite honestly, like church, this is the difficult part. Like it'd be wonderful if all we got to do was just sit there and find agreement with people. And smile and hold hands and sing kumbaya. <laughs> that would be wonderful in a lot of ways. But what he's saying right here is like, yeah, we, we're all really religious here. We want to know this God. But the God who created everything, the one who spoke everything to existence, you really think he lives in, in buildings made by human hands? You really think he inhabits the stone rock which you crafted yourself? You really think that that's the one who spoke everything into existence? Does it even make any sense? I, I, you really think that he needs you to polish him up and wipe his mouth after he's eaten or something like that? Like, no, he is the one, verse 25, who gives to all people life and breath and all things. He's the one who spoke everything into existence. Like, why would you think that he's existing in these different idols that are over here? And so again, like, this is where it gets really, really tricky because, like, you're not able to deconstruct false gods that you're not fully convinced are false, Right? And this is where it gets tricky. He does go through this movement. He doesn't just sit there in agreement. He deconstructs these false gods before he reconstructs with, by pointing people to Jesus here. But you can't really deconstruct false gods that you don't fully believe are false. And this is where it impacts us and hits us in a little different way. I mean, you're not going to have a whole lot of success in leading anyone to repentance from a God of money if functionally that is the God that you're serving every single day. Functionally, you're not going to have a whole lot of success Leading anyone into repentance over the God of sex or the God of self or whatever it may be. If functionally, that's who we're serving every single day. And it may be some of the hesitation that we have in going and engaging a lost and broken world, but I just want you to notice Paul goes there and he begins reasoning with people and he begins deconstructing the false gods that are out there. And he actually has success with this. We think that, hey, you can't do this. You can't talk truth. You can't reason with people. You can't, you can't contradict anyone. Paul does, and he has success. Verse 4, uh, early on in the chapter, it says, Some of the Jews were persuaded, and so were a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. In other words, Paul goes there, and he begins reasoning with people, and he starts talking with people. And people are being persuaded, and they're coming into the faith. In other words, church, sometimes people need that extra dose of love and compassion to understand that that's who God is. Sometimes they need a conversation. Sometimes they've got legitimate obstacles. They've got legitimate questions. They've got legitimate concerns that are going on inside of their heart. And more than just a hug or a sandwich or whatever it may be, they need an actual conversation where they see the differentiation between the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fallacies of whatever false gods, little g gods, may be, be, may be walked in at that moment in time. 
And so it's exactly what he does. And I just want you to see that, 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 that he's coming in there with, with reasons and, and compassion and out of love. And I think this is, needs to be said a little bit because there's a sense where, you know what, you can't reason anyone into the kingdom of God, which is absolutely true. You can't argue with anyone into the kingdom of God more so than you, can, you can't ever love someone enough to come into the kingdom of God. You can't ever do any of these things. Nevertheless, he's engaging in such a way that is being helpful. They're being persuaded along the way. How many of you would say that you're forever indebted to a ministry of someone like a C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, or a Tim Keller, Reasons for God, or um, Francis Schaeffer, or Lee Strobel, Case for Christ, any of these books in these ministries that they get into the thinking elements of the gospel, the, the hard questions about faith, and they've helped you come into faith or they've helped you uh, strengthen your faith or something like that. Like, this is my mom's story. This is largely my story in a lot of different ways. And so the question that's before you today is like, if that were someone in your life, would you be able to talk with them in such a way that would be able to reason with them, be able to help them with some of the difficult questions that they've got going on? And some of us are sitting here going, okay, that's just not really my wiring. It's not who I am. Uh, this isn't really me. But I think we can all agree that if someone I knew and loved, they lost their hearing, and the only way to communicate with them was through sign language, I would do whatever it took to learn sign language so that I'd be able to speak with them and communicate in a way that they could receive. I may not know Spanish. I know Google Translate. <laughs> I could use the app and make sure that they're able to understand it in a certain way that they can receive it. It's the same thing here. You may not need to know all the answers. You may not need to be C.S. Lewis, Tim Keller, or any of these reasons for God kind of people, but you do know where to point people, and you do know how to love them in such a way that helps them understand some of the questions of the faith. I had a friend a little while ago, he's up north, he's a church planner there, and he goes, my entire ministry and my whole church are skeptics of the faith. It's very different than Bible Belt culture down here in the south. He goes, everybody there hates Jesus before they come into the church, essentially. And we got to deal with some very, very real opposition to the faith. And he goes, I don't have all the answers, but what I like to do with them is he goes, I just sit there and I say, hey, that's a great question that you have. Would you like to read this book with me, Reasons for God by Tim Keller? I would love to meet with you. I'd love to answer. This is going to deal with some of these questions. And I'd just like to talk with you and go on this journey with you. Can't tell you how many people have come into the faith and come into the church as a result of loving people well enough to go the depth and to go into the details and to be able to deal with some of the things that are keeping them from understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's where Paul goes right here. He sits there and he says, you know what? You've got, you've got questions. You've got obstacles. I'm willing to go there with you. And so he keeps going and the last part is he just keeps reconstructing with the story of Jesus. And I love this. It's just so real with Paul. And it's an overflow of his relationship with Jesus. But he comes in and he begins telling the gospel narrative, the big story of scripture. He says, from one man, meaning Adam, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the entire earth. He marked out their appointed times in history, the boundaries of their lands. And he did this so that we would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. In other words, God is a God who wants to be known. He, he created humanity that we can know him. He's not running away from you and me. He's not hiding from you and me. He wants to be known. He continues and he says, for in him, meaning in God, we live and we move and we have our being. And you can hear Paul preaching from the overflow of this relationship with God where he's saying, God is my being. He is the one I have life in. He is the, life, he is the one I live my life through. He is the one that I have the entirety of my being in. And he is preaching here saying, in him we live and we move and we have our being. We are his offspring, he says. 
which is what the psalmist says. He is a father of the fatherless. He is a, he is a defender of the widows. And so he says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Why would you think it's found in these idols? Why would we think that life in God is found in any of the things that we serve? In the past, God's overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent and to turn from their little g gods and to return to him again. And I love how he wraps this all up. He simply says, you guys want proof that Jesus is this unknown God that you've been trying to find and trying to serve forever? He goes, he's given us proof by raising Jesus from the dead. And this whole time, he just comes back and he just keeps pushing people to the facts of the resurrection. 17 years after the resurrection, people still alive. And he's like going, he's going, guys, we've got over 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. We've got a tomb that is now empty. We've got a rock that's been moved away. We've got guards that have no explanation. We've got disciples that were down and depressed at the time of his crucifixion, now completely turned around and giving their life for the sake of the gospel. And every step of the way, he just keeps pointing people to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to show you how this whole thing ends, because if you decide to engage the mission of God in a very real way in the world in which you live, there's going to be one of three responses. And he wraps it up right here, and I want you to see what he says. Now, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead... Some of them mocked him. Others said, we will hear you again about this. And other men joined him, and they believed. And church, if you decide to engage the mission, and you go out there with the gospel of Jesus Christ, longing for him to be glorified in the, belief, in the, in the reception of the gospel message, there will be one of these three responses. Some will mock you and reject you. You will have family members, you will have friends that do not embrace this gospel message you hold. They won't like it. There will be rebellion. There will be mocking. There could be rejection. Some people are going to hear that presentation, and they're going to get curious, and they're going to say, you know what? I need to process this a little bit more. I've got some questions, and I'm going to think about this, and I'm going to go on and on and on, and I'm going to think about this. But here it is, church. Some of them will hear you, and they'll believe. Some of them, when you take that step of faith, and you say, this is the good news of what God has done for you in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some of them are going to hear that good news like that illiterate farmer who went out there to his world and he brought the hope of the gospel. And some of them are going to say yes. And churches are going to be born. And God is going to be glorified. And people are going to be set free. And forgiveness is going to, is going to, is going to spread. There's going to be grace to be received. And God is going to be glorified in the end. And this is the thing that makes every bit of the mocking, every bit of the rejection, absolutely worth it. Some will say yes. Tell you what, it's been more, one of the most encouraging things in the world to hear the missionaries tell testimonies of how the mission, the mission continues to go on. And people continue to say yes over and over and over again. It doesn't matter the shutdown, doesn't matter the difficulty, doesn't matter the lack of funds. They continue to press forward because of the beauty of someone crossing from death into life and receiving the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, that is the opportunity that's been given to us. It's not just that we come and we gather inside these walls and enjoy fellowship and learn how to uh, have a better life, that we have the hope of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the hope that one day he's going to return once again, he's going to make all things brand new. Life now and for all of eternity wrapped up in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. May we be provoked by the idolatry in our world. May we be even more provoked by our own. May we move forward and engage 
really, really well to the point that we go to our friends and to our neighbors, to our co-workers, and to the world in which we live, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all around the world, that Jesus would be lifted up, that he would be glorified in the end. Father, we love you, God. We thank you. And God, I pray that you would come and you would have your way in us, Lord God, that you would... Father, I pray that you would... Um, that you would prompt some of us, Lord, to have even more faith today, God, that we would grow, that we would take steps of obedience. God, that we would be willing to engage that person that you put into our heart, into our life, not with judgment, not with condemnation, but with an incredible amount of affection and the truth of the gospel of Jesus. God, I pray that we would take those next steps. And Father, I pray that you would add to our number daily those who are actually being saved. God, that some would believe Father, we pray for that, God, that some would believe. Would you give people faith today? God, would you keep building your church? Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you this day. May your blessing be on all of our missionaries as they are in really difficult parts of this world today. May your favor be on them. Strengthen them today and strengthen your body. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.